Hi, I'm Jelani Blake, and you're listening to Caesar Voices, a podcast series focused on bringing research closer to you. This series is brought to you by the Journal of Caribbean Environmental Sciences and Renewable Energy, or CESA, which is probably more familiar to most of you. Each episode, we'll hear from some of the leading Caribbean environmental experts who'll be helping us to better understand what's happening in our region. We'll be getting a summary from the people on the front lines, the heroes doing the heavy lifting in terms of searching for solutions to some of our most pressing environmental problems. If you'd like to give suggestions, have your research featured, or sponsor an episode of Caesar Voices, use the links in the accompanying description to learn more. Welcome back to our two-part inaugural episode where we've been taking a look at research efforts over the course of 2018. Today, in part two, we'll be hearing about the potential role of tourists in coastal conservation efforts in Barbados from environmental economist Professor Peter Schumann and agricultural expert Dr. Dale Rankin will be showing us how he and others are tackling the issue of food and nutrition security in the Caribbean through crop simulation modeling. We'll also be chatting with another one of our donors, Nakita Poon Kang, who's been doing some very interesting work as Mustique Island's environmental manager. So without further ado, let's get into it. Coastal tourism is an integral source of income for many Caribbean islands. But this puts pressure on our marine ecosystems, which are already under strain from climate change and local activities such as fishing. Now, we can't afford to lose our natural resources, nor can we afford to lose our income from tourism. And conservation is already a challenge for developing nations like ours. It's quite a predicament. Luckily, researchers have found some very creative solutions to the problem. One of these researchers is Professor Peter Schumann, an environmental economist from the University of North Carolina. And he's been working with the tourism board in Barbados to figure out how to make tourism and conservation work hand in hand. Now, some of you may be hearing the term environmental economist for the first time. So, my area of economics is the non-market valuation of environmental goods and services. What does that mean? Economics at its core is concerned with choices, decisions that people make, the implications of those choices, how we make choices, why we make choices, and, and the consequences of our actions. If we lived in an infinite world with infinite amount of resources, then the discipline of economics wouldn't exist. But we live in a finite world where resources are limited, and as a result, people are faced with trade-offs, and economics studies those trade-offs. Environmental degradation costs us as society quite a bit. And understanding those costs is an important part of dealing with them. Of course, environmental conservation is also costly. And so balancing the need for development with the need for conservation is, you know, at its core, an economic problem. Makes sense, right? And as for the relevance of tourism in all of this. Tourism in the Caribbean is largely environmentally focused. We think of it as sun, sea, and sand tourism. But what is sun, sea, and sand tourism? Well, that's people coming to experience the coastal and marine environment in beautiful locations with unique cultures. And so my work with tourism tries to understand the, the importance of environmental quality, natural resource quality, and ecosystem services to the tourism product and to understand what tourists are willing to pay for environmental quality. And perhaps more importantly, to understand what might happen to tourism and therefore national economies if the coastal and marine environment continues to degrade. You know, there's a danger with coastal tourism that the 
development of the coastal zone to accommodate tourism, that means infrastructure and buildings and hotels and everything that goes with it, will actually degrade the environment and curtail the very draw that is bringing tourists to the region. And so my work is trying to understand the economic value in dollars and cents of environmental quality and to also understand how people might respond to environmental change. Which really brings us to a very interesting study. Is it that you finished the study or you're still ongoing? Much of the work is still ongoing. You know, we have, we have the basic results, but we also have a very rich data set. Over the past years, we've had the opportunity to interview and survey some 8,000 tourists in, in Barbados predominantly. We've also done some work in, in other countries, in Trinidad and Tobago, St. Kitts and Nevis, and Honduras, with similar survey instruments and similar data collection efforts. But basically what we're looking for is what tourists are willing to pay for environmental change. And that could be willingness to pay for environmental improvements or willingness to pay to avoid environmental degradation. And this willingness to pay can come in many forms, uh, and we've tried to attack it from many different angles. What are people willing to pay in terms of higher hotel room prices? What are people willing to pay in terms of overall trip expenditures? And what are people willing to pay in terms of a contribution to environmental trust funds or dedicated conservation efforts? So we've approached this from many different angles uh, with many different valuation methods to really try and get our hands around the economic importance of environmental quality to tourists. Clearly, this was quite a rigorous exercise, and along with their main findings, these researchers made some pretty interesting discoveries. Some of the things that we've found through our non-market valuation work in Barbados, one, we've talked to a lot of tourists, and one of the things that we learned that was perhaps a little bit surprising was the amount of tourists, the percentage of tourists that are directly viewing the underwater marine environment. A lot of destinations, including Barbados, think of themselves as sun and sand destinations. But we found in Barbados that over 50% of tourists are directly viewing the underwater marine environment, mostly with a mask on their face through snorkeling or diving, but also through things like glass bottom boats. So that was a big important takeaway from the work, was learning that it's not just sun and sand, it's also the reef, it's also the fish under the sea that are attracting tourists. And so people are viewing the underwater marine environment and they are influenced by the quality of the underwater marine environment in terms of how much they're willing to spend and whether or not they're willing to come back. Another big thing that we learned through our research is that tourists have a very strong aversion to pollution in its many forms. This isn't surprising when you think about just that statement, but we've looked at tourists' willingness to pay for many aspects of coastal and marine quality, reef quality, fish sightings, encounters with charismatic species like uh, sea turtles, and we've also looked at litter. And of all the attributes that we've examined over the years, tourists have the strongest feelings and reactions to pollution, litter on beaches specifically, and the quality of the seawater. And we've learned that if litter continues to build up on beaches, if the quality of the seawater continues to degrade, there are going to be very serious implications for tourism and by extension, national economies. So I think low-hanging fruit in terms of economic impact is to keep beaches clean and to do what we can to prevent pollutants from entering the seawater. Finally, one other interesting aspect of the results that we've discovered is that people are willing to pay a lot to avoid further losses. People are attached to the quality that they've experienced and they're willing to pay more to avoid degradations in inequality than they are to pay for similar improvements. 
So for example, people are willing to pay a lot more to prevent the reef from degrading by another 10% than they would be willing to pay to have the reef improve by 10%. In economics and, and in psychology, this is a phenomenon known as loss aversion. People are very averse to losing quality that they've become accustomed to. And this is an important message, I think, for policymakers is that it's very difficult to get environmental quality to improve, but it might be substantially easier to keep the environmental quality from degrading further. And this would have very important economic implications. So we see that tourists care a lot about environmental quality in the places they like to visit, to the extent that they're pretty much willing to foot the bill for conservation. But what happens to the money once they've paid? Yeah, this is a very important question. We found that tourists are very much willing to pay for environmental conservation efforts, provided that they know where the money is going and they can observe the results. So people are concerned that if they donate to environmental conservation through government entities, that the money will be absorbed into consolidated funds and it won't be used to targeted conservation efforts. So we found that people are more willing to pay if they know it's going to go to a non-governmental organization that is specifically tasked with environmental protection. And again, most of our work has been in the area of coastal and marine resources, so coastal and marine protection. Uh, so the money gets funneled in from various sources, goes into these conservation trust funds, and then it comes out in the form of dedicated programs or competitive grant programs where local NGOs, local government organizations, even private sector businesses can submit proposals for ways to improve environmental quality or the tourism product or activities that mitigate damage from climate change. And each country that has one of these conservation trust funds handles it in a different way because they obviously have different priorities and different needs. But generally, that's a really effective process is to use a conservation trust fund as sort of a clearinghouse for these funds being collected on one end and then being distributed toward conservation efforts on the other end. Speaking of conservation efforts, I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering what some of these efforts entail. I know I was. I can think of certain factors that are threats to the environment, and I can see how some of these will be dealt with. I mean, with overfishing, I imagine this has to do with some kind of enforcement, things like fishery policy and stuff like that. I'm just wondering, for something like coastal overdevelopment, how would we deal with something like that? This is a good question. When the coast is already developed, it's difficult to go back. But what we can do is try and control the way pollution leaves the land and comes into the sea. So controlling the runoff points, attempting to maintain natural coastal lands wherever possible. For example, coastal wetlands and mangrove ecosystems are incredibly valuable in terms of how they assimilate pollution before it reaches the sea. And they're also incredibly valuable in terms of mitigating the effects of storms. Thirdly, they're valuable in terms of what tourists are willing to pay. What we're learning through this research is that the environmental attributes that protect the land from storms that absorb pollution before it reaches the sea and that people are willing to pay for are one and the same. So there's sort of a triple win opportunity here. If we maintain the natural integrity of the coastal zone, it's going to help protect our land-based resources, our assets in the coastal zone. It's going to help attract tourists and it's going to help assimilate pollution before it reaches the sea, which is going to lead to higher fisheries productivity. You know, the unfortunate thing is that very separate disciplines address these issues. You know, the fisheries people talk about the fisheries stuff and the tourist people talk about the tourist issues. But really, it's one big issue, right? This is an ecosystem with lots of moving parts. And so one thing I think that's really important for us to think about doing is getting these cross-cutting areas to the forefront by working in interdisciplinary teams, by working together, right? Economists can't just write for economists. Fisheries managers can't just write for fisheries managers and research in a way that only impacts other fisheries people. 
we've got to try and work together. We're all trained in our own specific disciplines, which have our own methods, our own assumptions, our own languages. And so, you know, breaking down these silos and moving into other disciplines is a difficult thing to do, but I think it's an absolutely essential thing to do. You know, that last point could also apply to the global issue of climate change. After all, the Earth is one big ecosystem with several moving parts. And although we come from different areas, we ultimately face the same problem. Professor Schumann probably knows this very well. He lives all the way in Wilmington, North Carolina. And yet the problems facing the coastal zone in Barbados are all too familiar to him. Coastal tourism here in, in Wilmington is very much the same as coastal tourism in the Caribbean region. I think the difference is, is that we have a, a different season. People come here for coastal marine tourism mostly in the summer months. But we have exactly the same issues. We have erosion issues. We have coastal development issues. We have issues related to overfishing. We have conflicts between private sector and public sector. We have conflicts between commercial uses and recreational uses of marine resources. So, you know, at its heart, coastal and marine resource management is the same the world over. You know, we've got pollution issues that we wrestle with and balancing the needs of tourism and environmental quality. You know, it's a really delicate balance. And so we face those same issues here in North Carolina that we do in the region. Agriculture is crucial to Caribbean survival. We depend heavily on agriculture, not only for our food and medicine supplies, but for economic growth and sustainability. With climate change comes increasingly unpredictable conditions and an uncertain future for many Caribbean nations. But agricultural scientists like Dr. Dale Rankin are working hard to secure a path forward through a process known as crop simulation modeling. So what is crop simulation modeling? Crop simulation modeling is not a new science in itself. I mean, it's been around for, for over 30 years. It really is a series of computer programs that allows you to model real-life scenarios. It does not replace field experimentation. Rather, what it tries to do is see how closely you can simulate the conditions in the field and how closely your measured values are to what is simulated. It allows you to ask a number of what-if questions that would otherwise be very cost-prohibitive or time-consuming. So, for example, if I were to plant a crop like, let's say, yam or cassava, which has a crop season of up to 18 months, and I farm that in, say, Trinidad, and I wanted to find out what would happen if I were to farm this same yam or cassava in Jamaica. In the field, I would typically have to uproot it, you know, take a sample, take it to Jamaica, plant it, and wait another 18 months to see what would happen. Well, what the crop simulation model allows it to do is, you know, after about two seasons in Trinidad, I could take the information, I could model it, and then I could actually get the climatic conditions, the soil conditions from Jamaica, what management options I'm going to use, whether I'm going to use fertilizer, whether I'm going to use irrigation. I can put it in the model and I can farm it virtually, and then I can see what the production output is going to be before I make a determination. This helps me to determine whether or not I should embark on the farming any at all. But what is also useful is that it allows you to optimize your production. That is to say, you can get the best value for money by altering a number of conditions in the model. You can change your soil type, for example. You can change your fertilizer application. You can change the kind of irrigation system that you have. And you can use that as a mechanism to determine what conditions will optimize your production. And this is extremely useful and it saves a lot of time and money. You can also look at what will happen in the future. You can start 
to identify what crops are drought tolerant. There are some models that allow you to look at saline intrusion, so you can look at what crops are tolerant to saline conditions. And in the advent of climate change and sea level rise, that's a very useful application as well. You know, looking at what production capacity you will have for the future in 2030, 2050s, and so on, and start making anticipatory plans. It is one of the most economic applications of modeling, and it allows you to make very, very, very good assessments ahead of time, and therefore it is quite useful for the farming community. I like um, you mentioned there the implications in regards to climate change, um, especially in light of the warnings that we've been given in terms of the SR15. This brings me to ask about the agricultural crop modeling project that's making use of crop simulation modeling. We do have a regional tranche of the pilot program for climate resilience. It's commonly called PPCR, and this is looking to do modeling throughout the Caribbean, looking at a number of important crops and identifying what are some of the ways in which we can improve our production of these crops. It's also looking at some critical areas. For example, we import a significant amount of wheats and cereals from North America. And of course, once there's price volatility, this significantly impacts our ability to feed ourselves. So there has been a focus on locally grown roots and tuber crops, for example, your cassava, your sweet potato that can be produced year round here in the Caribbean. And we're trying to identify what are the varieties that can be best grown, what are the yield potential for these varieties, and identifying ahead of time, how will climate change impact these varieties? And so this is something that we are actually developing as we speak. It's, it's in its infancy. The idea is that we are actually planting in the field. We're going to be using the results from the field. So we're going to be having real-time and real-life data. And then we'll be able to see what the real potential of the crops are. And then we'll be able to alter those conditions in the model and give a fairly decent spread of the different conditions that can be experienced in the future and how this will impact on yield. We think this is going to be a very useful tool in the sense that it is going to ensure that crop simulation modeling is included in the routine operation, as we say, mainstream in the routine operations of the agriculture sector. Of course, bringing this into the mainstream requires accessibility. But luckily, the project has discovered we made an overture to a donor called the Adaptation Program and Financial Mechanism of the local PPCR, and they were gracious enough to grant us a project. And this is going to be developing a mobile application for farmers and extension officers and other users as well that will significantly reduce the learning curve for the farmers. So, for example, we don't expect all users to be able to do the high level of technical modeling that the technocrats do. However, we'll provide for them a platform, a knowledge platform that they can use and they'll be able to identify what are some of the potential challenges that they'll face and what are some of the remedial measures. We also do training as well in the use of models. We use two major models, one called AcroCrop, which looks at the impacts of water on yields and how that affects productivity over time. And we do have another one called DSAT, which is an acronym DSSAT that stands for Decision Support System for Agrotechnology Transfer. And this looks at a whole range of other parameters apart from just water. It looks at fertilizer, it looks at crop rotation, and it looks at economic analysis and a whole range of genetic and other parameters. And so this is going to provide a wonderful opportunity for us to build capacity in the sector and be able to start planning from now for all the vagaries that could affect us in the future.
The future is a moving target, especially in the face of climate change. And this has a team working overtime to account for as many factors as possible. So this is where the work that we've been doing when the Climate Studies Group comes in, where we do a number of different applications of modeling. There's the scientific tier one modeling, which looks at how the science is evolving, what changes that we're going to have in our weather parameters and so on. But of course, outside of that, there's a tier two, which is impact modeling, which look at different sectors. And I work for the agriculture sector. And of course, there's tier three modeling, which then looks at the economic impacts and so on beyond that. Is it something that we want to try and spread globally or is it something that's already being employed globally? Actually, crop modeling itself is practiced quite extensively in a number of developed countries. We are the ones that have been left behind. And one of the reasons for that is that you find most persons who are involved in climate change look at the science of climate change and they look at you know, other sectors, but not so much on agriculture. And those who are involved in agricultural research tend not to do the climate modeling. And so you really have to have a vested interest in both disciplines to do this kind of work. Yes, definitely. The idea behind it is that we want to move the process forward for the Caribbean region. As you know, most of the studies that have been done, if not all the studies that have been done, have clearly demonstrated that SIDS, small and developing states, and especially Caribbean SIDS, will stand to bear the brunt of the impacts of climate change. And in fact, a disproportionately high burden of the impacts, even though we contribute minimally to the problem. And so we really have to start to find innovative, sometimes inventive ways to feed ourselves and find ways and means of reducing our reliance on imported foods. We hope the results will be so compelling that other persons will, will actually use the results of the study and we stand ready to share them. So this is the area of your research that I'm most familiar with. So I've, you know, much of my questioning has been in this area. Are there other aspects of your research that you wish to speak about? Sure. Well, one of the other things I, I will say that when you think agriculture, you know, we often think crops. One of the forgotten stepchild of agriculture is livestock. You know, that's where we get most of our animal proteins from. And we feel very strongly that we cannot afford to focus exclusively on crops, but we also have to look at our livestock. And so we've been doing some work looking at the impacts of climate change induced heat stress on animals. Um, Certainly our chickens, both our broilers and our layers and pigs and, you know, small ruminants and so on. And we have found that that 1.5 above, 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels represent an, an upper limit of the kinds of heat stress that they are going to experience. And that right now, as we speak, many of our animals, because most of them graze in the open air without shade, are experiencing considerably high levels of heat stress. In fact, it was one of the papers that was published and that made it into that 1.5 special report by the IPCC. And so it is suggesting that we really have to start taking very serious stock of our livestock now. And probably we have to start looking at things like litter management, for example. You know, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And this is produced in the litter of most of our livestock. Most of it remains in the location where the animals graze and in some cases where they are hosted. Litter management is something that we have to start looking at. Uh, we've seen also that there are significant correlation between even the birth rate of the animals and the success of mating linked to heat stress as well. And so these are some of the other studies that we're actually doing and we're making recommendations of how these can be addressed in the future because we recognize that you know, the region stands to lose significantly if we don't start taking actions now. 
As many of you know by now, Caesar would barely exist without the help of its donors. These generous individuals come from all across the world, but some of them live right here in the Caribbean. And we recently met one in particular who happens to be doing exactly the kind of work meant to be featured in our journals. Her name is Nakita Punka, and she's originally from Trinidad and Tobago, but she lives and works on an island few of us have ever heard of. Mastique Island is a private island in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which makes it a really interesting place to work in the environmental field because we basically have control over what we do with regards to the operations of the island. Uh, it's a really interesting dynamic being on an island like this in the Caribbean, very different. Uh, a lot of other Caribbean islands, uh, like Trinidad, for example, <laughs> completely different. Nikita's job title is one we've heard before. But her position is pretty unique. So I'm the environmental manager. This was a position that was created a couple of years ago. I'm the first person in the position. And yeah, so I oversee all environmental initiatives and projects on the island. That's all encompassing. So it could be land conservation, marine conservation, renewable energy, waste management, uh, a wide range of things. Can you maybe tell us about any you know, environmental initiatives that you guys might have on the island? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so one of our initiatives is a coral restoration program. So that falls under the marine environment. Coral reefs around the world uh, have been disappearing due to climate change. We've had lots of bad storms in the Caribbean, hurricanes, uh, and then just general sort of lack of good water quality around the Caribbean region. So same thing happened around the Grenadines. And one of the ways that we can sort of help restore our reefs is by growing and outplanting corals. So we have different nurseries where you basically hang corals suspended in water. They grow for six to nine months and then you take them and then sort of stick them back on the reefs. So we've been doing that for the past three years, a really successful program. We've outplanted over 5,000 fragments of reef building corals, elkhorn corals. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty successful program that few people know about. Now, this is exactly why Caesar was started. Imagine amazing stuff like this happening on Mustique Island and barely anyone knows about it. So this is actually one of the reasons why I was interested in this journal, because the Musty Company has not actually linked to different publications or just in general, any type of awareness with regards to this. And so part of my role is to actually get this out on a regional level, but to different audiences. So I thought this was actually a really good opportunity to showcase what Mustique has been doing. As I said, because it's a private island, you don't actually know what's happening. So that is what brought you to Caesar in the first place and what I guess led you to make a donation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think having this journal is so crucial. Being in the Caribbean region, getting information from the Caribbean region for the Caribbean region. It's something that's been severely lacking. Um, and even as my role as environmental manager, it's not a scientist position. So I need to be able to sort of bridge that gap between the science and then obviously communicating and informing management decisions. So for me, I think this is an incredibly useful tool, uh, one, to connect to the rest of the region and also showcase Mustique, but two, just actually have that knowledge available, readily available uh, for us to utilize on island as well. 
Well, folks, that's all we have for you on our very first episode of Caesar Voices, the podcast series focused on bringing research closer to you. I'd like to thank our guests for taking part, and of course, you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'd love to make this a regular podcast, but we can't do it without your help. So I'm just reminding our listeners once again that you can click the link in the accompanying description to visit our website, caesarjournal.org donations, where you can join the monthly donor club. If you'd like to be an official sponsor of Caesar Voices and feature your company or NGO, please follow the corporate link in the description to learn more.